Chapter Eight of The Lust of Hate by Guy Newell Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight We Are Saved. The calm with which we had so far been favoured was not, however, destined to be as permanent as we imagined. For towards the middle of the night, the wind got up and the sea, from being as smooth as a glass, became more boisterous than I altogether liked. Miss Maybourne, who now seemed to be sunk into the lethargy from which she had roused me, lifted her head from her hands and at intervals glanced over her shoulders apprehensively at the advancing waves. One thing was very evident. It would never do to let our boat drift broadside onto the seas, so I got out the oars again and to distract my companion's thoughts invited her to take the helm. She did as I requested, but without any sign of the eagerness she had hitherto displayed. Then for something like an hour we struggled on in this crab-like fashion. It was Herculean labour, and every minute found my strength becoming more and more exhausted. The power of the wind was momentarily increasing, and with it the waves were assuming that more threatening proportions. To say that I did not like the look of affairs would be to put my feelings very mildly. To tell the truth, I was too worn out to think of anything, save what our fate would be, if by any chance we should be on the edge of a hurricane. However, I knew it would not do to meet trouble halfway, so by sheer force of will, I riveted my attention upon the boat, and in thus endeavouring to avert the evil of the present, found sufficient occupation to prevent me from cross-questioning the future. Suddenly Miss Maybourne, who, as I have said, had for some time been sitting in a constrained attitude in the stern, sprang to her feet with a choking cry. Mr. Rexford, she said in a voice that at any other time I should not have recognised as hers, I must have something to drink or I shall go mad. Fearing she might fall overboard in her excitement, I leapt up, seized her in my arms and dragged her down to her seat again. Had I not done so, I cannot say what might not have happened. Well, let me go, she moaned, for heaven's sake, let me go. You don't know what agony I am suffering. I could very well guess, for I had my own feelings to guide me. But it was my duty to try and cheer her any cost. And upon this work I concentrated all my energies, at the same time keeping the boat's head in such a position that the racing sea should not overwhelm her. No light worker, I can assure you. When at last I did succeed in calming her, she sat staring straight ahead of her like a woman turned to stone. It was pitiful to see a woman who had hitherto been so brave brought so low. I put my arm round her waist, the better to hold her, and as I did so watched the black seas with the tips of their snowy foam come hissing towards us. Overhead the stars shone brightly, and still not a vestige of a cloud was to be seen. It seemed like doubting Providence to believe that after all the dangers from which we had been preserved since we had left England, we were destined to die of starvation in an open boat in mid-Atlantic. And yet, how like it looked. After that one outburst of despair, Miss Maybourne gave no more trouble, and when she had been sitting motionless beside me for an hour or thereabouts, fell fast asleep, her head resting on my arm. Weak and suffering as I was, I was not so far gone as to be unable to feel a thrill of delight at this close contact with a woman I loved. What would I not have given to have been able to take her in my arms and comforted her properly? To have told her of my love, and in the event of her returning it, 
to have faced King Death side by side as lovers. With her hand in mine, death would not surely be so very terrible. I was a criminal, a murderer, flying from justice, and it would have been an act of the basest sacrilege on my part to have spoken a word to her of the affection by which this time had come to be part and parcel of my life. For this reason I had to crush it and keep it down, and if by any chance we should be rescued, I would have to leave her and go out and hide myself in the world, without allowing her ever to suspect the thoughts I had had in my mind concerning her. God knows in this alone I had suffered punishment enough for the sin I had unintentionally committed. At last the eastern stars began to lose something of their brilliance, and within a short period of my noticing this change, the wind which had been sensibly moderating for some time past dropped to a mere zephyr, and then died away completely. With its departure, the violence of the waves subsided, and the ocean was soon, if not so smooth as on the previous day, at least sufficiently so to prevent our feeling any further anxiety on the score of the boat's safety. One by one the stars died out of the sky, and a faint grey light, almost dove-coloured in its softness, took their place. In this light our boat looked double her real size, for such a lonely speck upon that waste of water that it made the heart of the boldest man sink into his shoes with fear. From the above-mentioned hue, the colour quickly turned to the palest turquoise and again to the softest pink. From pink it grew into a kaleidoscope of changing tints that the sun rose like a ball of gold above the sea line, and the day was born to us. In the whole course of my experience, I never remember to have seen a more glorious sunrise. How different was it in its joyous lightness and freshness to the figures presented by the two miserable occupants of that lonely boat. At last Miss Maybourne opened her eyes and, having glanced round her, sat up. My arm, when she did so, was cramped and stiff. For a moment I could scarcely bear to move it. She noticed this and tried to express her regret, but her tongue refused to obey her commands. Seeing this with an inarticulate sound, she dropped her head to her hands once more. To restore some animation to my cramped limbs, I rose and endeavoured to make my way to the bows of the boat. But to my dismay, I discovered that I was as weak as a month-old child. My legs refused to support the weight of my body, and with a groan I sank down upon the thwart where I had previously been rowing. For upwards of half an hour we remained as we were without speaking. Then I suddenly chanced to look along the sea line to the westward. The atmosphere was so clear that the horizon stood out like a pencilled line. I looked, rubbed my eyes and looked again. Could I be dreaming? Was it a delusion conjured up by an overtaxed brain? I shut my eyes for a moment and then opened them and looked again. No, there can be no mistake about it this time. A ship was in sight and heading directly for us. Oh, the excitement of that moment, the delirious joy, the wild, almost cruel hope that seized me. But mad with longing though I was, I had still sufficient presence of mind left to say nothing about my discovery to Miss Maybourne until I was sure of my facts. She was sitting with her back towards it and therefore could not see it. So while there was any chance of the vessel leaving us, I was not going to excite her hopes, only to have them blighted again. There would be plenty of time to tell her when she was close enough to see us. For what seemed an eternity, I kept my eyes fixed upon the advancing vessel, watching her rise higher and higher above the wave. She was a large steamer, almost twice the size of the ill-fated Fiji princess. A long trail of smoke issued from her funnels, 
and at last so close did she come i could distinguish the water frothing at her bows with the naked eye when she was not more than three miles distant i sprang to my feet you are saved miss maybourne i cried frantically finding my voice and strength as suddenly as i had lost them we are saved oh thank god thank god she turned her head as i spoke and looked steadily in the direction i pointed for a minute and there were little sighs she fell upon the gunwale in a dead faint i sprang to her assistance and kneeling at her feet chafed her hands and called her by name and implored her to speak but in spite of my exertions she did not open her eyes when a quarter of an hour had elapsed and she was still insensible i began to wonder what i should do to remain attending her might mean that we should miss our deliverer in that case we should both die at any cost and now more than ever i knew i must attract the steamer's attention she was not more than a mile behind us by this time and if i could not only make her see us she would be alongside in a few minutes for this reason i tore off my coat and attaching it to an oar began to wave it frantically above my head next moment a long whistle came across the waves to me it was the signal that our boat had been observed and never did a sound more musical to a human ear on hearing it i stood up again and shading my eyes with my hands watched her approach my heart beating like a piston rod closer and closer she came until i could easily read the name king of carthage upon her bows when she was less than a hundred yards distant an officer on the bridge came to the railings and hailed us boat ahoy he cried do you think you could manage to pull alongside or shall we send assistance to you in reply for i could not trust my voice to speak i got out my oars and began to row towards her short as was the distance it took me some time to accomplish it seeing this the same officer again hailed me and bade me make fast the line was about to be thrown to me the words were hardly out of his mouth before the line in question came whistling about my ears i seized it as a drowning man is said to clutch at a straw and clambering forward secured it to the ring in the bow when that was done i heard an order given and willing hands pulled us quickly alongside by the time we reached it the gangway had been lowered and a couple of men were standing at the foot of it ready to receive us i remember leaning over to fend her off and i also have a good recollection of seeing one of the men the ship's doctor i afterwards discovered him to be step into the boat can you walk up the steps yourself or would you like to be carried he asked as i sank down on the thwart again carry the lady i answered huskily i can manage to get up myself take her quickly or she will die I saw him pick Miss Maybourne up and, assisted by the quartermaster who had accompanied them, carry her up the ladder. I attempted to follow only to discover how weak I really was. By the exercise of sheer will, however, I managed to scramble up, holding on to the rail, and so gained the deck. Even after all this lapse of time, I can distinctly see the crowd of eager faces pressed round the top of the ladder to catch a glimpse of us. I can hear again the murmurs of sympathy that went up as we made our appearance after that all seems blank and i can only believe what i am told namely that i looked around me in a day sort of fashion and then fell in a dead faint upon the deck when i recovered consciousness again i had to think for a moment before i could understand what had happened i found myself in a handsomely furnished cabin that i had never seen before for an instant i imagined myself back on the ill-fated fiji princess 
and a tall red-bearded man the same who had carried miss maybourne up from boat entered and came towards me through the door which he had left open i could see the awning covered promenade deck outside as soon as i saw him i tried to sit up on the velvet cushion locker upon which i had been placed but he bade me be content to lie still for a little while you will be far better where you are he said what you want is rest and quiet take a few sips of this and then lie down again and try to get sleep you have some arrears to make up in that line or i'm mistaken he handed me a glass from the tray above my couch and held it up for me while i drank when i had finished i laid myself down again and instead of obeying him began to question him as to where i was but once more i was forestalled this time by the entrance of a steward carrying a bowl of broth on a tray you see we are determined one way or another to close your mouth he said with a laugh but this stuff is too hot for you at present we'll put it down here to cool and in the meantime i'll answer not more than half a dozen questions far away if you feel inclined i took him at his word and put the one question of all others i was longing to have answered how is the lady who was rescued with me doing as well as can be expected poor soul he replied she is being well looked after so you need not be anxious about her you must have had a terrible time on that boat to judge from the effects produced and what is the next question i want to know what ship this is and how far we were from the salvages when you picked us up the vessel is the king of carthage captain blockman in command i'm afraid i can't answer that last question offhand for the reason being that the doctor and i have nothing to do with the navigation of the ship but i'll soon find out for you he left the cabin and went to the foot of the ladder and led to the bridge i heard him call the officer of the watch to say something to him presently he said the salvages lie about seventy miles due nor nor east of your present position he said nor nor east i cried and i was even further out of my calculations than i expected why do you ask about the salvages because it was on a rock of those islands that our ship the fiji princess was lost he put off from the island to try and catch a sailing vessel that came in sight yesterday morning a dense fog came on however and during the time it lasted we lost both the ship we went out to stop and also our island ever since then we have been drifting without food or water you have indeed had a terrible experience but you've got a splendid constitution and you'll soon get over the effects of it now tell me were there no others safe in the wreck as far as we could tell with the exception of our three selves not a single soul you say three selves but we only rescued the lady and yourself what came of the third the third was a child about eight years old the poor little thing must have been hurt internally when we were sucked under by the sinking ship and her condition was not probably improved by the long exposure we had to endure at the bottom of the boat from which she rescued us she scarcely recovered consciousness and died on the island a short time before we left it in our attempt to catch the vessel i spoke of just now i've never heard of a sadder case said the doctor you are indeed to be pitied i wonder the lady your companion came through it alive by the way the skipper was asking me just now if i knew your names the lady is miss maybourne whose father is a well-known man at the cape i believe surely not cornelius maybourne the mining man yes she is his daughter he will be in a terrible state when the Fiji princess is reported missing. I expect he will, but fortunately we shall be in Cape Town almost as soon as she would have been, and he will find out that his daughter, thanks to your care, is safe and sound. I'm not going to let you talk any more. First take as much of this broth as you can manage, and lie down and try to get to sleep again. 
as I said just now. I prophesied that in a few days you'd be up and about, feeling no ill effects from your terrible adventure. I obeyed him and drank the broth. When I'd done so, I'd laid down again, and in a very short time was once more in the land of Nod. When I opened my eyes again, the cabin was almost dark. The doctor was still in attendance, and as soon as he saw that I was awake, asked me if I would like to get up for a little while. I answered that I should be only too glad to do so, and when he had helped me to dress, I took possession of a chair on the promenade deck outside. It was just dinner time in the saloon, and by the orders of the captain, who came personally to inquire how I was, I was served with a meal on deck. Nothing could have exceeded the kindness and thoughtfulness of the officers and passengers. The latter, though anxious to hear the story from my own lips, refrained from bothering me with questions and thinking quiet would conduce to my recovery, allowed me to have the use of that end of the deck unmolested. As soon as I could do so, I inquired once more after Miss Maybourne, and was relieved to hear that she was making a most satisfactory progress towards recovery. After dinner, the captain came up, and seating himself in a chair beside me, asked a few questions concerning the foundering of the Fiji princess, which information I presumed he required for his log. You have placed Miss Maybourne very deeply in your debt, he said, after a little further conversation, and I don't doubt but there will be many who will envy your good fortune, having conferred so signal a service upon his daughter. By the way, you haven't told us your own name. My heart gave a great jump, and for the moment I seemed to feel myself blushing to the roots of my hair. After the great kindness I had already received from everyone on board the vessel, it seemed worse than ungrateful to deceive them. I dared not tell the truth. For all I knew to the contrary, my name would have been proclaimed everywhere in England before they left. My name is Rexford, I said, feeling about as guilty as a man could well do. Any relation to the Rexfords of Shrewsbury? asked the captain with mild curiosity. Not that I'm aware of, I answered. I've been living out of England for many years and have no knowledge of my relations. It's not a common name, continued the skipper. That's why I ask. Sir George Rexford is one of our directors and a splendid fellow. I thought it was just possible that he might be some connection of his. Now, if you will excuse me, I'll be off. Take my advice and turn in early. I'm sorry to say that we're carrying our full complement of passengers so that I cannot give you a proper berth, but I've ordered a bed to be made up for you in my chart room where you have been all today. If you can manage to make yourself comfortable there, it is quite at your service. It's very kind of you to put yourself to so much inconvenience, I answered. I fear by the time you reach Cape Town, I shall have caused you a considerable amount of trouble. Not at all, not at all, the hospitable skipper replied as he rose to go. I'm only too glad to have picked you up. It's our duty to do what we can for each other, for we none of us know when we may be placed in a similar plight ourselves. After he left me, I was not long in following the good advice he had given me. When I had once reached my couch, I fell into a dreamless sleep, from which I did not wake until after eight o'clock next morning. Indeed, I don't know that I should have waked even then, had I not been disturbed by the noise made by someone entering the cabin. It proved to be the doctor. How are you feeling this morning, he asked, when he had felt my pulse. Ever so much better, I replied. In fact, I think I'm quite myself again. How is Miss Maybourne? Still progressing satisfactorily, he answered. She bids me give you her kind regards. She has been most constant in her inquiries after your welfare. I don't know whether my face had revealed my secret or whether it was only supposition on his part. 
but he looked at me pretty hard for a moment and then laughed outright you may not know it he said but when all's said and done you're a jolly lucky fellow i sighed and hesitated a moment before i replied i'm afraid you're mistaken i said luck and i have never been companions i doubt if there is a man in this world whose career has been more devoid of good fortune than mine as a boy i was unlucky in everything i undertook if i played cricket i was either always bowled out or for a duck's egg or run out just as i was beginning to score there was an accident in the football field when i was playing i was invariably the sufferer i left oxford under a cloud because i could not explain something that i knew to be a mistake on the part of the authorities i quarrelled with my family of the same misunderstanding i was once on the verge of becoming a millionaire but illness prevented my taking advantage of my opportunity and while i was thus delayed another man stepped in and forestalled me i had a legacy but it brought me nothing but ill luck finally driven me out of england and since then the tides of ill fortune has turned he said a beautiful and wealthy girl falls overboard you dive in and rescue her i've heard about that you see the ship you're travelling by goes to the bottom you save your own and the same girl's life then as if that is not enough you try your luck a third time and just as a terrible fate seems to be going to settle you for good and all we heave in sight and rescue you now you have miss maybourne's gratitude which would strike most men as a more than desirable possession and at the same time you have her father's and by the peculiar irony of fate both come to me when i'm quite powerless to take advantage of them come come you mustn't let yourself down like this you know very well what the end of it all will be if you spend your life believing yourself to be a marked man you mean that i shall lose my reason no no you needn't be afraid of that i come of a hard-headed race that has not been in the habit of stocking asylums i'm glad of that now what do you say to getting up i'll have your breakfast sent in to you here and after you've eaten it i'll introduce you to some of the passengers on the whole they are a nice lot and very much interested in my two patients i thanked him and to show how very much better i felt sprang out of bed and began to dress true to his promise my breakfast was brought in to me by a steward and i partook of it on the chart room table just as i finished the doctor reappeared after a little conversation we left the cabin and proceeded out onto the deck together here we found the majority of the passengers promenading or seated in their chairs amongst them i noticed two clergymen two or three elderly gentlemen of the colonial merchant type a couple of dapper young fellows whom i set down in my own mind as belonging to the military profession the usual number of elderly ladies half a dozen younger ones of more or less fascinating appearance and at the same time a number of children as soon as they saw me several of those seated rose and came to meet us the doctor performed the necessary introductions in a few minutes i found myself seated in a comfortable deck chair receiving innumerable congratulations on my recovery strange to say i did not dislike their sympathy as much as i had imagined i should do there was something so spontaneous and unaffected about it that i would have defied even the most sensitive to take offence to my astonishment i discovered that no less than three were personal friends of miss maybourne's although all confessed to having failed in recognising her when the boat came alongside for the greater part of the morning i remained chatting in my chair and by midday felt so much stronger that on the doctor's suggestion i ventured to accompany him down to the saloon for lunch the king of carthage was a finer vessel in every way than the ill-fated fiji princess 
A saloon was situated amidships and could have contained the other twice over comfortably. The appointments generally were on a scale of great magnificence. And from what I saw at lunch, the living was on a scale to correspond. I sat at a small table presided over by the doctor and situated near the foot of the companion ladder. In the pauses of the meal, I looked round at the fine paintings let into the panels between the ports, at the thick carpet on the floor, the glass dome overhead, and then at the alleyways leading to the cabins at either end. In which direction did Miss Maybourne's cabin lie? I wondered. The doctor must have guessed what was passing in my mind, for he nodded his head towards the after alley on the starboard side, and from that time forward I found my eyes continually reverting to it. Luncheon over, I returned to the promenade deck, and after a smoke, the first in which I had indulged since we left the island, acted on the doctor's advice, went to my cabin to lie down for an hour or so. When I returned to the deck, afternoon tea was going forward, and a chair having been found for me, I was invited to take a cup. While I was drinking it, the skipper put in an appearance. He waited till I had finished, and then he said he would like to show me something if I would accompany him along the deck to his private cabin. When we reached it, he opened the door and invited me to enter. I did so, and as I crossed the threshold, gave a little start of surprise, for Miss Maybourne was there, lying upon the locker. Why, Miss Maybourne, I cried in complete astonishment. It's a pleasant surprise. I had no idea you were about again. I hope you're feeling stronger. Much stronger, she answered. I expect I shall soon be myself again, now that I have once made a start. Mr. Rexford, I asked Captain Blockman to let me see you in here for the first time in order that I might have the opportunity of expressing my gratitude to you before we face the passengers. You cannot imagine how grateful I am to you for all you have done for me since that awful night when the Fiji princess went down. How can I ever repay you for it? By becoming yourself again as quickly as possible, I answered. I ask no better payment. I thought she looked at me in rather a strange way as I said this, but it was not until some time later that I knew the reason for it time i would have given worlds to have spoken the thoughts that were in my mind but that being impossible i had to hold my tongue though my heart should break under the strain we were both silent for a little while and then miss maybourne took my hand and i could see that she was steeling herself to ask me some question and was not quite certain what answer she would receive to it mr rexford she began and there was a little falter in her voice as she spoke you told me on board the Fiji Princess that you were going to South Africa to try and obtain employment. You must forgive me saying anything about it, but I also gather from what you told me that you would arrive there without influence of any work. I want you to promise me that you will let Papa help you. I'm sure he would be only too grateful for the chance. It would be a kindness to him, for he will remember that, but for you, he would have never seen me again. I did not do it for the sake of reward, Miss Maybourne, I answered with an outburst of foolish pride that was not very becoming to me. Who knows that better than I, she replied, her face flushing at the thought that she had offended me. But you must not be angry with me. It would be kind of you to let me show my gratitude in some way. Papa would be glad to give you letters of introduction or to introduce you personally to people of influence and then there is nothing you might not be able to do. You will let him help you, won't you? If she could have only have known what she was asking of me. Be introduced to the prominent people of the colony was the very last thing in the world I wanted. My desire was not only to attract as little attention 
as might be but also to get up country and beyond the reach of civilization as quickly as possible however i was not going to make miss maybourne unhappy on the first day of her convalescence so i promised to consider the matter and let her know my decision before we reached cape town by this compromise i hoped to be able to hit upon some way out of the difficulty before then from that day forward the voyage was as pleasant as it would be possible for one to be delicate as was the position on board we were not allowed for one moment to feel that we were not upon the same footing as those who had paid heavily for their accommodation the officers and passengers vied with each other in showing us kindnesses as may be imagined we were not slow to express our gratitude day after day slipped quickly by and each one brought us nearer and nearer to our destination as the distance lessened my old fears returned upon me after all the attention i had received from our fellow travellers after miss maybourne's gracious behaviour towards me it will be readily imagined how much i dreaded the chance of exposure how much better i asked myself would it not be to drop quietly overboard while my secret was still undiscovered and to stay on board and be proclaimed a murderer before them all on the evening prior to our reaching cape town i was leaning on the rails of the promenade deck just below the bridge when miss maybourne left a lady with whom she had been conversing came and stood beside me the evening was cool and for this reason she had thrown a lace mantilla lent her by one of the passengers over her head and had draped it round her shapely neck it gave her an infinitely charming appearance indeed in my eyes she appeared the most beautiful of all god's creatures a being to be loved and longed for beyond all her sex and so tomorrow after all our adventures we shall be in cape town she said have you thought of the promise you gave me a fortnight ago what promise was that i asked though i knew full well to what she alluded to let papa find you some employment i do hope you will allow him to do so i looked at her as she stood beside me one little hand resting on the rail and her beautiful eyes gazing across the starlit sea and i thought how hard it was to resist her but at any cost i could not remain in cape town every hour i spent there would bring me into greater danger i have been thinking it over as i promised i said and i've come to the conclusion that it would not be wise for me to accept your offer i've told you repeatedly miss maybourne that i am not like other men god knows how heartily i repent my foolish past but repentance however sincere will not take away the stain i want to get away from civilization far and as quickly as possible for this reason immediately we arrive i shall start for the transvaal and once there shall endeavour to curb out a new name and a new life for myself this time providence helping me it should be a life of honour god grant that you may succeed she said but so softly that i could scarcely hear it may i tell myself that i have your good wishes miss maybourne i ask with i believe a little tremor in my voice every good wish i have is yours she replied i should be worse than ungrateful after all you have done for me if i did not take an interest in your future then i did a thing for which it was long before i could forgive myself heaven alone knows what induced me to do it but if my life had depended on it i could not have acted otherwise i took her hand in mine and drew a little closer to me agnes i said very softly as she turned her beautiful face towards me tomorrow we shall be separated perhaps never to meet again after tonight it is possible if not probable 
that we shall not have another opportunity of being alone together. You don't know what your companionship has been to me. Before I met you, I was desperate. My life was not worth living. But you've changed it all. You've made me a better man. You have taught me to love you, and in that love I have found my belief in all that is good. Even I believe a faith in God. Oh, Agnes, Agnes, I'm not worthy to touch the ground you have walked on, but I love you as I shall never love a woman again. She was trembling violently, but she did not speak. Her silence had the effect, however, of bringing me to myself, and it showed me my conduct in all its naked baseness. Forgive me, I whispered. It was vile of me to have insulted you with this avowal. Forget and forgive, if you can, that I ever spoke the words. Remember me only as a man, the most miserable in the whole world, who would count it heaven to be allowed to lay down his life for you or those you love. Oh, Agnes, is it possible that you can forgive me? This time she answered without hesitation. I have nothing to forgive, she said, looking up into my face with those proud, fearless eyes that seemed to hold all the truth in the world. I am proud beyond measure to think that you love me. When I heard these precious words, I could have fallen at her feet and kissed the hem of her dress. But I dared not speak, lest I should forget myself in my joy and say something which I should never be able to atone. Agnes, however, was braver than I. Mr. Rexford, she said, you have told me that you love me, and now you are reproaching yourself for having done so. Is it because, as you say, you are poor? Do you think so badly of me as to imagine that would make any difference to me? I could not think so badly of you if I tried, I answered. You have said that you love me, and I mean it. I love you as I believe a man never loved a woman before. Certainly I shall never love again. Then lowering her head so that I could not see her face, she whispered, Will it make you happier if I say that I love you? Her voice was as soft as the breath of the evening rustling some tiny leaf, but it made my heart leap with delight that I had never known before, and then sink deeper and deeper down with a greater shame. God forbid, I cried almost fiercely, you must not love me. You shall not do so. I am not worthy even that you should think of me. You are worthy of a great deal more, she answered. Oh, why will you so continually reproach yourself? Because, Agnes, my conscience will not let me be silent, I cried. Because, Agnes, you do not know the shame of my life. I will not let you say shame, she replied. Have I not grown to know you better than you know yourself? How little she knew of me. How little she guessed what I was. We were both silent again, and for nearly five minutes. I was the first to speak, and it took all the pluck of which I was master to say what was in my mind. Agnes, I began. This must be the end of such talk between us. God knows if I were able in honour to do so, I would take your love and hold you against the world. But as things are, to do that would be to proclaim myself the most despicable villain in existence. You must not ask me why. I could not tell you. But some day, if by chance you should ever hear the world's verdict, try to remember that, whatever I may have been, I did my best to behave like a man of honour to you. She did not answer, but dropped her head on her hands and sobbed as if her heart would break. Then, regaining her composure a little, she stood up again and faced me. Holding out her hand, she said, You have told me that you love me. I have said that I love you. You say that we must part. Let it be so. You know best. God have mercy on us both. I tried to say amen, but my voice refused to serve me. As I turned and looked across the sea, 
i felt the hot salt tears rolling down my cheeks by the time i had recovered my self-possession she had left me and gone below End of chapter eight